Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast, where we bring people together to discuss topics that matter. The Critical Climate Conversations podcast series is a partnership between Credit Suisse and the Aspen Institute UK. Much has been discussed recently about whether the most critical social and environmental challenges can be met and resolved by governments, by company and by us as individuals. And at Aspen UK, we think it's hugely important to address what really needs to be done and to ask awkward questions of those in this most vital of fights for the very survival of our communities and of our planet. Do we really have cogent plans necessary to tackle the climate emergency? I'm Penny Richards, I'm the head of the Aspen Institute in the UK, and we really enjoy using the Aspen Institute's global convening power to invite some of the most thoughtful and experienced thinkers to discuss some of the most consequential topics of our time. And really, today's panel does prove that we're able to do that. I'm so glad they're able to join us. Before I introduce Philippa Nuttall and the others here, a quick word about today's seminar. There will be plenty of opportunities to ask questions of the panelists. Please put all your questions in the Q&A tab. And I know that our panelists will be really happy to answer as many as possible. But first, briefly to the panel. Um, we are so lucky that some of these people have joined, all these people have joined us today. We couldn't have asked for a better group of people to have this quite um, conflicting and interesting conversation. I'm going to go through an alphabetical order. Um, Rebecca Braswell is the founding member and CCO of Land Life Company, which is helping reforest the world's 2 billion hectares of degraded land. Svina Frank is the executive director of Carbon Market Watch, which works to ensure that carbon markets and other climate mitigation tools contribute to the fight against climate change while respecting human rights. Taria Badigashin is the co-chair of Voluntary Carbon Markets Initiative Steering Committee, which is a global task force initiated to monitor the integrity of voluntary markets for the purchase and sale of carbon offset credits. Steve Oldman is the CEO of Carbon Engineering, a carbon capture technology company. And last but not least is Ariel Perez, who's the managing partner of Vertry, which helps organizations deliver ambitious climate commitments through nature-based solutions and bring them towards net zero emissions. It's quite a stellar panel and with a hugely stellar moderator. At Aspen UK, we're, we're lucky that we can invite some of the world's top journalists to lead our conversations. And today really is no exception. Philippa Nuttall is the environment and sustainability editor at Newt Statesman. I've seen her talk on, well, I've actually heard her talk in a number of podcasts, and I'm a, a massive fan of her spoken word as well as her written word. So, so Philippa, thank you so much for leading this conversation today. And, and over to you. Thank you, Penny. And that was quite an introduction, so I hope we can all live up to that and we're all fired up. So as Penny has said, um, the discussion around offsets is definitely conflicting and interesting. Um, at COP26, we saw the considerable protests uh, when Mark Carney was speaking and, and setting out um, plans around offsetting. And um, so I think it's a really great that we're having this discussion and that we've got such a, a varied panel. So to kick us off, I'd just like us to go around quickly and for you all to give very briefly in a, a couple of minutes, carbon offsetting, should it have a role um, in climate action or are we kidding ourselves? So Rebecca, perhaps you can kick us off. Sure, absolutely. 
I think carbon offsetting does play a role. Um, the energy transition is going to take a lot of time. We are literally trying to turn an oil tanker around and we can't do that overnight. So some form of compensation, reduction, removal, all of that is going to be needed as we as a society and business and a community kind of complete this energy transition. At the same time, I would say we are kidding ourselves if we think that we are starting with a clean balance sheet. Right, The amount of residual CO2 in the air, the number of additional toxins that are released as byproducts um, in the CO2 emission process, it's been accumulating over decades, over hundreds of years. And to think that one ton uh, emitted minus one ton avoided equals zero, I think is missing, the, is missing the point. We don't have a clean balance sheet here. Excellent. Thank you. Sabina, what's your opinion? Well, at Carbon Market Watch, we think that offsetting is essentially an anachronism and that it needs to be uh, phased out, to say the very least. But coming out with a statement against offsetting is not the same as saying that there shouldn't be carbon credits and that carbon credits uh, shouldn't be bought. Um, we put the emphasis um, on reducing emissions. That the that's the first and foremost um, requirement of our time to reach the Paris uh, climate goals. Um, beyond that, um, the, the offset, well, the, the carbon credit market is, is very important, but companies don't need uh, to buy into it in order to net their emissions. They can do so um, merely in order to pay for valuable climate contributions. Okay, thank you. Teria? I think, sorry to say that you're on mute. <laughs> Somebody had to be, it's fine. Sorry, but, uh, um, I'll take it. Um, I think, um, you know, we at the VCMI um, really want to move beyond um, sort of that phrase in terms of um, it really serving as a, we would almost think of it as a misnomer in that we need to think of, of carbon credits as being additional and not instead of. And the concept of an offset is that um, 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 highly emitting or carbon intensive sectors um, are potentially continuing with business as usual and buying credits to continue with business as usual, which is not acceptable and doesn't um, represent integrity. Um, integrity, um, integrity of carbon markets is about um, doing everything one can to reduce emissions, um, to even go to the, down the path of removing and then in the context of what is additional, potentially unabatable, to use carbon credits to get to that finish line. And yes, that might be a sliding scale, but carbon um, credits should be, and the voluntary carbon markets should be used toward a pathway and not, um, in, um, not to be used instead of um, a greener pathway. Okay, great, thank you. Ariel, do you agree with what we've heard or have you got a different view? I actually agree with a lot of what, um, what we've heard. Um, our view is strongly that a global carbon price and cooperation um, on pricing carbon is by far the most effective way to limit uh, climate change and to address this problem. Um, we've been trying to get global cooperation on carbon pricing, you know, for over 25 years. And from my perspective, uh, carbon offsetting or carbon, you know, trading between two entities on a voluntary, you know, on a voluntary basis. Um, really kind of represents, you know, from our perspective, uh, you know, a reaction uh, in the private sector and really in, in, in the international community 
um, to really kind of step up and fill the gap uh, that's been left by policymakers for a very long time. So if we think that carbon offsets or carbon removal units or any kind of, you know, kind of verifiable and, and additional um, intervention that results in a carbon reduction or removal um, will need to be registered. Um, the activities need to be published. Um, there needs to be some sort of registry to avoid double counting. Um, and whether we call it a carbon offset or a CDR or an Article 6.4, you know, ER, um, the mechanism of actually investing into reducing emissions and trying to price externalities um, and transfer them between two different parties that have drastically different uh, marginal costs, um, we think is here to stay. Uh, and we think it's a good thing that the international community is kind of rallying around Article 6 um, because it will, in our, from our perspective, force governments and companies to really start thinking about this rationally um, and really picking and choosing when and how they deploy capital um, into these different opportunities around the world. Um, but by far, the most effective way is a mandatory carbon price, which you know, we, hope, we hope we'll get one day. Okay, great. Thank you, Ariel. So, uh, Steve, uh, talking of the private sector, what, what's you, your view from the private sector as a, as a carbon capture and storage company? Oh, achieving net zero is going to be extremely challenging. Achieving net zero while maintaining and growing the standard of living around the world is going to be even more challenging. So having the ability to physically remove a CO2 molecule from out of the atmosphere and putting it measurably safely, permanently, additionally, verifiably back underground where it came from in the first place is a very powerful tool that can be one of the many tools that we use to get to net zero. So I think carbon offsetting done in those terms is a very useful and powerful tool that can help us achieve net zero while maintaining the access to energy and the standard of living that we like and that the rest of the world also wants to get to. Okay, great, thank you. So thanks to all of you. So Sabina, to come back to you, you said that um, the main emphasis, and Terry, you said the same thing, needs to be on reducing emissions. Long-term, can we reduce emissions and offset because we need emissions in the system to, to offset? So how is that going to work long-term, Sabina? Well, it's clear that um, the uh, the offsetting can 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 only come in at the very end of uh, a long row of measures, a long row of mitigation measures. I mean, take a, a company for example. This the standard for uh, climate targets by companies is a science based target uh, initiative that doesn't foresee any offsetting at all. At the you know the most it says that at the very end of the process by the by the time a company reaches net zero offset should only play a role in the order of about 10% and there is no recommendation that offsets should play any role on the way uh, to that goal okay thank you and Terry, is that how you would also see the situation or do you see it a bit differently pretty much in line i mean the the idea that um, there's a lot of work to do on the pathway um, in terms of um, you know, in, in decarbonizing, um, reducing intensity, um, re reducing emissions um, within um, the various scopes, and then really using the carbon markets as sort of the final solution. And I think uh, the point about that final, um, that final percentage, that final kind of unabatable un 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 emission is critical. 
Um, but I, I think where, um, you know, it, it gets a little bit more tricky is really on the pathway, because um, ultimately, it, it's still a journey. And to determine when you have actually, when a company has reached that end point, where there is sort of only unavailable emissions left is where there's there are question marks. And so they're really, and that's where science-based um, sort of frameworks are very crucial because there really does have to be that pathway where you're continuously reducing and using um, carbon credits as part of your toolkit um, during that process. And I think that's what can be a little bit tricky right now because we do need voluntary carbon markets to work and, and, and you know, the, the power of Article 6 and the power of this type of of, um, of capital uh, globally to drive emissions reductions is, you know, is, is key, but we just have to make sure that we're all targeting our path, tar targeting the pathway and how to deal with that is where sort of integrity frameworks become really critical. Okay, and, and Ariel, do you agree with this um, idea that offsetting is, is almost a, more of a, a last resort, it's at the end of the process, it's not where our primary focus should be, or do you see offsetting as a much, and the carbon price is a much sort of more central part of climate action globally? It, it, it's not, I mean, it's not a part, it's, it's, it's almost everything. Because the reality is that, you know, when people talk about and I use the analogy of people who say a carbon tax is better than a carbon price. Now, what's great about carbon taxes is that you know what the tax is and you can plan around it. Um, what's bad about it is that it's almost guaranteed to be the wrong price because the fair value carbon price changes every year. Uh, it changes by region. It changes by season. It changes as tech new technologies evolve. Um, so when you have policies that fix something other than the amount of emissions that can be, you know, that can be emitted and that goes down in perpetuity, Fixing anything else with regards to climate um, and, 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 and carbon markets, um, you know, is, is a major problem because the economy and, you know, and emitters and, and, and people who invest have no flexibility. So from our perspective, you know, the, you know, the role that carbon markets play is in compliance carbon markets, you have a price against which emitters can evaluate whether an investment, for example, in carbon capture and storage or, um, you know, in a green hydrogen facility is making sense relative to the market signal. Um, or if it makes sense to essentially buy uh, a carbon permit issued by the government um, or perhaps sold by somebody who's made an earlier investment. Um, and in a voluntary carbon market, it's very much bottom up. Um, so knowing where there is demand and understanding where, you know, the market, you know, the market is clearing, um, you know, from our perspective, that puts a whole bunch of, you know, interventions and activities that wouldn't otherwise have happened. So in other words, purely additional uh, in scope. Um, and this is really important on issues around, you know, uh, environmental justice and working in indigenous communities. There's no other, from, from our perspective, there's no other environmental incentive to end deforestation on a large scale where we've seen this amount of capital flowing into the market, um, which isn't denominated in dollars per ton of CO2. And we know that there's a tremendous amount of other co-benefits, um, which are still, you know, not priced and mispriced if, if they are priced. Um, but carbon is very much a means to an end. And our worldview is that everything really comes down to the risk-adjusted price of carbon abatement and removal, um, and not just today, but looking into the future and across the world. OK, 
Okay, and, and Taria, for you, you mentioned additionality before. Are there right uh, measures in place already or will they be? I mean, we're advancing a little bit now with, with Article 6. Be in place to make sure that anything that happens is additional to what would have happened otherwise? Or you still think that extra measures need to be put in place? I think um, um, something really powerful that came out of COP um, was this concept that, um, you know, carbon markets, voluntary carbon markets need to have integrity, that, that integrity must be at the center um, if they're going to work, because we don't want a situation where there's sort of a massive failure, um, which basically jeopardizes um, the potential for these type of capital flows that drive um, sort of carbon reduction, um, improve um, reforestation, um, and ultimately help us to achieve our goals, because there, there is going to be utility in having this sector. But without integrity, um, you know, we're, you know, there's going to be problems. And that was very strong coming out of COP. And I think one of the key things was this issue that this cannot be an excuse to continue business as usual. Yep. Um, and I think, um, I think even if there was any sense that um, that would be possible, it's very clear now that I think to all parties that um, really these markets really should be used as um, additional, should be used sort of on that pathway and that everyone has to make that contribution to reduction of emissions um, and to be on a position of sort of continuous improvement. And there must be sort of reporting, science-based targets, transparency. And I mean, a lot of the work we're doing at VCMI is again, how do you manage your claims? And there's gonna to need to be a lot of work as to, you know, how do you, what, what is the framework for the type of claims that folks are going to make? And I know we're gonna to touch on claims, but the reality is that, um, you know, claims are powerful and everyone, and there's a lot of organizations that want to be able to benefit from sort of the new capital order that's going to require uh, folks to be aligning with net zero. And if all that's being done to achieve those objectives is to buy credits, then that's not integrity. And I think that came out loud and clearer from COP. Yeah, definitely. I think Sabina wants to come in. Yes, indeed. I wanted to pick up on what Ariel was saying and the distinction he drew between the voluntary and the compliance market. I, I think it's useful to point out that there is a, a different distinction, and that is that there are cap and trade markets or emission uh, trading systems where polluters are required by legislation to participate and that the baseline and credit markets that we are effectively talking about here are largely based on voluntary contribution. And that leads me to the point that actually more emission reductions need to become mandatory. We need to expose for mandatory um, emission reductions. And another important distinction um, to make there is that cap and trade systems are actually designed to make the polluter pay and so much that they're incentivized to decarbonize, whereas um, baseline and credit markets still work by the logic of making it as cheap as possible for polluters um, to offset um, their emissions and to, you know, to um, effectively enable business as usual at minimal cost. Thanks, Sabina. Steve? Yeah, I want to push back on Sabina's comment that um, uh, emission uh, control needs to come first and offsetting only comes at the end. I want to make a couple of points on that. So 
The first point is that that isn't a black and white binary statement. For some sectors, emission control is extremely challenging, like aviation, for example, and we can't wait to decarbonize those sectors. So different sectors will have a different requirement and plan as to how they can get to net zero. And that's where I'm gonna now make my second point about offsetting versus removal, but that's where offsetting slash removal comes in. And the IPCC recognizes this. They most recently estimated about 20% of the world's emissions are going to have to be removed because of the challenge of stopping them at source. So if we know that's the answer, we should start as we mean to go on and develop the removal capability today. And that's why I want to touch on offsetting versus removal. To me, a very, very different thing. Removal is physically taking a CO2 molecule out of the air and putting it back underground permanently, measurably, additionally. That is a very different thing than an offset. There are many different types of offsets. We're very familiar with them. Some offsets attract criticism for their um, additionality and their measurability. The technology that we have, which pulls CO2 out of the air and puts it physically back underground again, I would assert is not an offset. It's a removal. And a removal has its place when looking at the overall challenge of how does every sector, every country in the world decarbonize everything. I'm a big fan of electrify what you can, you know, prevent what you can, remove the rest. Yeah, I would have to agree with uh, Steve um, about that difference between uh, avoidance versus versus removals. The challenge I have with these types of very technical conversations is that it sometimes often misses the point about the restoration that is required. And it's also very inward focused, right? So we're talking about companies looking inwards, which they which they need to do, but it ignores the broader context in which these businesses are operating. Paris is a climate accord. It's not just a carbon accord. And we're talking about climate, which is about systems and ecosystems and way more complex than a single periodic or combination of a few elements on the periodic table. And that, and that's where I really struggle with how technical this gets and singular and inward focusing because we have a huge climate challenge in front of us, which is going to require removals, but also restorative actions like natural climate solutions, like reforestation, um, in addition to businesses looking inwards and thinking about how they can change their operations to be more sustainable. Yeah, and no, I think you've both made very good points. Ellie, I, I know you've had your hand up. I just wanted to see if Sabine wanted to come back um, on the points that Steve made, and then I'll yeah, bring you I, in. I can do that briefly. Yes, of course, there are big differences between sectors and their ability uh, to reduce emissions. That is, that is clear. Uh, but if we talk about um, you know, the global picture, economy, economy as a whole, it is clear that in order to reach the Paris targets, we need to first and foremost... Um, um, look at reductions. And the offset market is actually incapable of, of delivering the reductions that, that we need. I referred to a, a recent study by Trove and UCL that found that even if um, the price um, of carbon removals was $100 uh, per tonne, the technology such as reducing deforestation, forest restoration, CCS, specs, and renewables in least developed countries could deliver around $2 billion tons of CO2 equivalent per year of emission reductions on average between now and 2050. So that is clearly, that is clearly not sufficient. 
Um, and I wouldn't contrast uh, offsets with removals either. I think the contrast to offsets is um, climate contributions. Um, it's, it's, and Rebecca already made the more correct, I think, opposition between uh, removals and reductions or avoided emissions. Okay, Steve, I'll come back to you in a minute if you want to, to come back on that. I just want to bring Ariel in. I just wanted to, you know, to, to again, mo mostly agree, um, but just make a distinction on the pricing and, and, and kind of the polluter paying principle. You know, cap and trade markets also clear at the minimum price that's required to balance the market and stay underneath the cap. So in some places around the world, if you wanted to put in place a carbon price to incentivize renewables, the carbon price would be negative because renewables are cheaper than conventional sources of electricity from fossil fuels virtually everywhere in the world. Um, and I think the carbon market has mechanisms. I mean, by definition, every carbon offset should be additional. Now, we can obviously you know, talk about things that are you know, relying on counterfactuals. And you know, by definition, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. Um, you know, on those, you know, on those sorts of on those sorts of projects. But by and large, you know, technologies and industrial facilities that are covered under cap and trade carbon markets experience deflationary price pressure. Right, uh, the prices go down for renewables, for CCS, for hydrogen, for direct air capture, um, and early stage the role of government by and large to incentivize either through feed-in tariffs or tax credits and things like 45Q, which are hugely important. And nature-based solutions and voluntary carbon markets are inherently inflationary. And I think Rebecca can maybe comment on this, but I think just because the price today is very low doesn't mean that it's low quality. What it means is that we're transitioning from a state where carbon is not priced. And the only thing that matters to somebody who is deforesting a hectare is what is the yield that I can get from destroying this and planting soybeans or converting it to palm oil or, or, or grazing cattle. And all of a sudden, when you introduce and say, I'll actually pay you $10 a ton equivalent translated down dollars per hectare. And you say, actually, that's actually you know, better for me. I make more money doing nothing. Uh, that, that is the essence of you know, a voluntary carbon permit in an area of the world where there isn't a cap and trade market and they haven't been responsible for most of the emissions. But we desperately need to somehow incentivize them to A, not release the carbon that has already sequestered uh, and B, invest in regeneration, invest in reforestation, and while not permanent carbon removal, at least on a short-term basis, start sequestering and, and, and storing carbon that wouldn't otherwise be done voluntarily without some sort of economic incentive. Thanks, Ariel. And, and while we're on the, the carbon price, there are two questions in the chat. Uh, one of the questions says, given that it's very unlikely every jurisdiction will sign up, implement and enforce a global carbon price, what can we do which is more realistic from a global point of view? And then the second question around carbon pricing is, do the panelists know the value of subsidies that the gas, oil and coal companies still receive as a value per tonne of CO2 they produce in terms of a fair price for carbon? Oh, Ariel, I'll let you start off and then we can bring others in. <laughs> I'll actually, let me, just let me just calculate what that is for you. Just, give, just bear me a second, come back to me on that one. Yeah. Okay, you're going to work it out for us? Yeah, I'm going to work it out for you, sorry. Okay, fantastic. Okay, super. Rebecca, did you want to come in? Then yeah, I was just saying, well, while Ariel is doing the math, I'm happy to, to chime in on the, that subsidy, right? So we, we, plant, we plant trees, for example, for the purpose of nature restoration. There are very few subsidies available for this type of activity. And imagine competing for land use against the oil and gas industry against agriculture, right? Because this is what this is all going to come down to in the natural climate solution sector is how do we 
How do we assign value to our land and who gets that value? And if you have massive subsidies coming in from, you know, unsustainable sectors, competition for more effective and efficient and important climate solutions is going is going to be potentially shuttered out, right? Um, and, and we really see that not only from oil and gas, but I would have to say agriculture as well. The subsidies that people get for grazing sheep, um, cattle, it really is disruptive to proper and optimal land use that could have real climate impact. Thanks, Rebecca. Steve, did you also want to come back in on the points that were made? You know, I think um, what motivated me in, in, in the work that our company does was uh, looking at the cost of trying to stop every emission on the planet. Mm-hmm. every emission on the planet net zero. So I look at, um, uh, for example, Goldman Sachs's carbonomics data. So they show the cost per sector of the economy of trying to stop every emission at source. And it is literally trillions of dollars. When you, and, and that's going to be very challenging for the world to afford, um, even if the political will was there. When you have the alternative of physical removal, again, permanent, additive, safe, measurable, permanent storage, I'd say $200 a ton, then you chop that curve, you draw a line across that curve. And when you do so, it saves the planet about $2 trillion per year. So at the big picture level of our need to decarbonize, our need to do so in a way that the planet can afford, in a way that allows us to maintain the standards of living of people around the world, Carbon removal becomes a very powerful tool, just one tool, just one mechanism alongside all the others, because there are still better ways to decarbonize. For example, replacing coal with renewable energy is always going to be a better solution. But when you look at the emissions across the whole planet and look at the area under the curve, the cost to stop those at source, having carbon removal as a tool becomes very, very useful. So that big picture. And Steve, where are we in terms of the economics of CCS? Because uh, while the price of wind and solar have also plummeted, the price of batteries and various other technologies, CCS seems to struggle to be economically competitive. Yeah, so I, we're a direct air capture company, not a CCS company. company sure, yeah. CCS well, direct air capture is even more expensive. It has been more potential, but it is uh, even more expensive. Yes. Yeah, no, exactly. So, you know, we're building our first one million tonne facility in, in the United States. Um, McKinsey did a really good cost estimate of what they think that cost is. They estimated about $250 to $300 a tonne for a first plant. The U.S. Department of Energy recently came out and said, we're going to have a program to get to $100 a tonne. As a company, we're confident we'll be part of that program can achieve that. At $100 a tonne, you're cheaper than trying to stop about 20 gigatons of the world's emissions at source. So it becomes a very viable alternative for many sectors when done permanently, additively, safely, measurably. So, uh, so that's why I, you know, I push back on Sabine and others in, in saying only do removal once you've, once you've stopped everything else. Some of those things to stop emissions are simply not feasible anytime soon, and we can't wait to decarbonize. Great, thanks, Steve. Uh, I think Ariel's done his maths now, so I'll let you come back in. So, and Steve, I'm glad you said $200 because that's pretty much exactly bang on what I, I think it is. So, you know, it's about $5.9 trillion a year and fossil fuels are about 90% of anthropogenic, um, you know, emissions, which is about 31 gigatons. So it's $189 a year. 
uh, $189 per ton per year. Um, and to just put that in perspective, you know, in COP, we got $130 trillion pledge, which obviously is a massive number, um, but it's over 30 years. So it's just under $4.3 trillion a year. So it's obviously less than, you know, and it's ambition to ramp up to that. It's not immediate. So it's obviously less than what the fossil fuel get, you know, industry gets in subsidies. So the question, now the, now the question, of course, is if we know the numerator, which is $4.33 trillion a year, the denominator is the marginal cost of carbon that it's being invested into. So, and this really kind of demonstrates the, 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 the problem here quite elegantly, you know, you need to balance um, relatively low risk, you know, high quality scalable opportunities to reduce and remove carbon. Uh, we think that energy efficiency and avoided deforestation are, are, are kind of no brainer, um, you know, activities that we need to incentivize. We think carbon prices are pretty effective um, at, at doing that. And frankly, we think direct air capture is, is the pinnacle. Um, of technologies, the feedstock is 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 is, is basically infinite. Um, it's got a big job to do of not just balancing current emissions, but also taking out uh, historic emissions that have built up um, in the atmosphere. You know, we agree with the IA's assessment. There's no way we're going to get to 1.5 without CCS and or DAC. Um, but you know, it's a journey. And you know, from our perspective, when you have a finite amount of capital, it's a very large amount of capital, but it is finite. Shouldn't be, but it is. Um, then you really need to be, you know, playing a bit of portfolio theory of how you allocate and how that allocation changes over time. And we think naturally you will have, you know, less avoidance technologies, less energy efficiency type plays that re that rely on counterfactuals and an ever increasing amounts of carbon removals, which by the way, take time to ramp up. So even if you invest today in a removal, you don't get a nature-based removal for almost a decade because things need to grow. Uh, and there's really kind of no way around that. Great, thanks, Ariel. I am super impressed that you managed to whiz that up on the back of an envelope. <laughs> Sabina. Yes, picking up on the theme of uh, too low carbon prices, it's too that historically uh, every uh, carbon market has tended to produce um, too low uh, prices, be that that market failures were already built into the system uh, or that the endeavor to buy as cheaply as possible was uh, simply too strong. Um, but it is up to buyers to decide what price they want to pay. And we already we see initiatives from a number of companies who don't go for the cheapest um, buying options, who consciously buy um, expensive um, carbon credits, which, which is, a, is a good thing. But apart from that, uh, companies also have the possibility of getting away from the whole offsetting logic and making climate contributions, that is buying carbon credits, which they do not use to net any emissions um, and to um, yeah to to you know do that on the basis of an internal carbon price to so not use the market price for their decision of what they buy but to set an internal uh, carbon uh, price and well there again there are good examples of of companies that are that are doing that Oh, yeah, I will bring you in a minute. I just wanted to ask Sabina because there's a question specifically for her. So I'll just ask this question. It says, so Sabina, in terms of the Carbon Market Watch report above and beyond carbon offsetting, the contribution claim model is noted as an alternative to offsetting as also set out in the Carbon for Net Zero initiative. Do you see any progress in this type of reporting on projects in line with this? And he also thanks you for your excellent work from South Africa. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, 
Well, I mean, we're pushing this point on the possibility of climate contributions as opposed to offsets strongly because it's not mainstream yet. I mean, that is clear, but I think the concept is gaining traction and it is the future. Uh, it's a matter of companies adjoin, uh, um, changing the way how they communicate about their climate action. I mean, what's forcing companies to prove that they are offsetting? They can equally claim that they are doing good for the climate and doing it at a price which is duly, uh, which is um, conducive to, to good projects with um, significant side benefits, be they uh, development benefits or be they other environmental uh, benefits. Thank you, Taria. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I want to sort of connect a few dots and then sort of touch on something that I, I think we really need to bring in to this conversation, which is around the impact on people and sort of the role of communities, um, the role of sort of rights holders into sustainability of these markets and how that ties to price, value, integrity, demand, and the journey, right? And so there's been sort of a few key words that have been mentioned here, and I just wanna connect them a little bit. Um, you know, I come from a local community in Nigeria in the Niger Delta that has actually really sort of been on the front lines of having to deal with sort of extractive um, sectors and how do you engage with sort of large corporates that are coming in to take resources. And so that sort of interplay is very crucial going forward. And I think one of the failures of carbon markets in the past and why prices have been very low is because there's really been a lack of trust as to what is the validity, um, what is also the integrity underlying it. But going forward, if these markets are really going to work, we, we also cannot have situations where communities are locked out of livelihoods where there isn't buy-in into the process and getting buy-in from communities is a long and involved process. Mm -hmm. um, historically, corporates go into communities and they engage with one representative and they get the job done and then it blows up and then it's a disaster. We've seen this happen time and time again, and that cannot happen with BCMs. Mm -hmm. And so what we're, we're and, and so this is why the concept of the journey the fact that there need to be multiple approaches, both reforestation, where you're going to need to work with communities, is not going to be a fast process. VCMs need to develop with care, right? Because it's not going to be about, and I, I think, you know, there was a point, I, I love Sabina's point about like, you know, the pressure, the downward pressure on pricing, in that this is one of those markets where downward pressure on pricing is not going to solve the problem. We actually need to have fair pricing. We need to have pricing that actually drives behavior sustainably so that the communities are benefiting. Communities, rights holders actually are better off. Livelihoods are improving and you have forests that are stable and are performing for the climate. And to achieve all of that, it's a much sort of more intricate process and the markets are going to need to evolve with more care and pricing is going to need to be higher. For that to happen because when you know if things move very quickly sure we can go sort of to that lowest cost but to really have integrity in these markets is going to sort of take a lot more um sort of 
uh, you know, value and capacity in the system. And I think just to touch on the issue of demand, now, while a lot of organizations are focusing on the integrity of supply, a lot of what they're dealing with is quality. So they're talking about what we're talking about here, uh, you know, um, corresponding adjustments, making sure, you know, you're, you're, you're checking different boxes. But that's quality. Integrity is how is this done? Who is involved? Who is engaged? Whose livelihoods are 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 circumvented or spoiled, or and and how how does this how does this play out over thirty years? That's actually integrity. And so to have a market like that, it's it's going to be sort of a very different price. And I think what we what I would hope and what we hope is that price is actually a fair price that therefore allows capital um, ultimately to flow. So I think those are some really important things that I want to bring into this conversation because the impact on these markets and how this deals with how, how, how people are going to react and sort of the crisis that could come about if this isn't handled with care really needs to be contemplated. Yeah, thanks for raising those points. I think they're super important. And they were also points that clearly came out at COP in terms of the indigenous populations, local communities that are still very concerned, even if these concerns seem to be being listened to a bit more. Rebecca, I definitely want to bring you in in two minutes. I just quickly want to ask, there are two questions here, which uh, Terry, you might want to respond to. One is what you've just touched on that says, given that carbon offsets are mostly done by developed economies, do you think there may be developmental consequences of carbon offsets in terms of hindering the economic development and living standards within developing countries? And also, um, the same person has followed up by saying, how can we ensure that carbon offset offsets are not exploited in a way which hinders systemic change? Absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it actually goes to the final point I wanted to make, which is about what is the responsibility of the demand? in how the supply is, 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 is given. And there is a much greater level of responsibility by developed, developed buyers to really understand what they are buying. And there, there has historically been sort of an attitude that, well, the integrity is, is uh, the responsibility of the seller. Well, responsibility, um, you know, integrity is the responsibility of the seller and the buyer. And that is really the, the challenge that we have right now is that, you know, we need to have a system where um, sort of all aspects of the, the buying spectrum understand what is going to constitute a high quality integrity based market. Now at the VCMI, one of the things, one of the pillars of what we're doing is actually country access strategies to basically help countries, especially developing economies, understand how to engage with developed economies on these markets. And a key aspect of that that will be important is how do you actually also engage with the local communities? Because there are also concerns about even how governments engage with local, local communities. How do you actually get buy-in and all of that? And so the trick here is the how. There's a lot of the what that's engaged upon, but to com complete the whole sort of spectrum of integrity, the how it's done is very important and the how often takes time. So Rebecca, the how, that's what you're involved in. <laughs> yes, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I was at COP and I thought, great that there are all these commitments, great that there's all this money flowing into the system. But unless that capital is deployed inclusively, we're not going to get very far. And, you know, we're planting 5 million trees next year. We don't own a single tree, a single hectare that those trees are, are being planted on because we believe that land ownership has to be held locally. You can't just go in and say, well, this is important for the, for the climate, so we're going to plant some trees here. It needs to create incomes. It needs to be inclusive. 
And that is incredibly hard work. That is often door by door, town council meeting by town council meeting. And you can't skip that part of the process. And I think that that's often what sometimes the invest, especially investors in this space, would like trees to go faster and capital to be deployed faster. And, and we're not going to realize those holistic solutions unless we do. And to connect that uh, to pricing, if we develop these integrity, the high integrity projects, um, this can also be a huge job creation at very sophisticated types of jobs in this sector. And that's where I think pricing this appropriately, developing robust and high integrity projects can also catalyze employment in the ways that we would hope. We hire forest engineers, we hire drone flyers. These are you know, complicated technical jobs. It's easy to train locally on how to do these. But again, the price has to be high enough to, to make those investments and those projects viable. And I think that that could be a really important outcome of this whole transition is creating a sector that is supporting this transition, that is giving people purpose in their jobs and is inclusive in nature. And just a point on that, how do you, if you don't own the trees, how are you ensuring that those trees are there in perpetuity because otherwise they're not storing the carbon so we're not essentially offsetting anything? And also if those trees are already being used by especially indigenous population for potentially other reasons, uh, how do you make sure that, yeah, that they're there and, and people don't feel that you're still going onto their land and telling them what to do? Yeah. So, I mean, what we've done is we've just disaggregated the funding with the operations. We're a nature restoration company. So we work with landowners who want to restore nature and we use carbon dollars to make that happen. The carbon dollars represent a fraction of the value that we're creating by restoring the nature, but it's what's measurable, it's what exists. So that's what we that's what we leverage. So we work a lot on public lands. We work a lot with indigenous communities on restoring uh, land that's been degraded by over farming, um, or that there hasn't been investment in. And what we do is we secure the carbon rights. And it is a it is a trust-based agreement because we're talking about 40 years at a time, which goes back to Taria's point about relationship building, about involvement around people seeing the value of what you're doing. Because we, we can't build a fence around it, right? We can't build a fence around everything that we need to plant and protect. And you see that a lot in avoided deforestation. I mean, some of these projects are literally guarded by people with guns so that people don't go in to cut down trees to feed their families. Everyone should be questioning whether that is a remotely viable solution for the future. This needs to create jobs. You need to build trust in the process and that takes time. And it is important to what Steve was also talking about to start today. It can't be weighted. You can't wait on these types of actions because they are so long-term. Thanks, that's great. Sabina, did you want to come in? Yes, indeed. I, I agreed with Taria when she said that assuring a climate integrity is both a responsibility of the seller and of the buyer. But uh, nevertheless, we have to ask questions about uh, the responsibility of the first buyer and the ultimate buyer of offsets in the carbon market. The question of this webinar is, are we kidding ourselves uh, about offsetting? We have to ask, who is kidding uh, whom um, there? Um, it's a difference, say, if we are kidding ourselves about offsets we might buy for a decision about flying that we have taken or whether we are be being sold something which is presented as uh, carbon neutral, which isn't actually uh, carbon neutral, which is based on uh, dubious claims. Um, I, I want to refer here to a study, for example, that Carbon Market Watch has done by uh, carbon neutrality claims of fossil fuel companies. We examined 18 carbon 
neutrality claims by oil and gas majors, largely for liquefied natural uh, gas cargo. And we found that each of those claims amount to greenwashing. So there are not just uh, honorable players um, in the market and we have, to, we have to reckon with the desire to greenwash for, for economic profit and there need to be regulatory initiatives um, to counter that. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions we have here is, are companies retiring carbon offsets and claiming carbon neutrality, not kidding us? Does the current offset market encourage greenwash misleading the public? And I think your answer is probably yes, given what you just said. Well, and it, but it depends on, on what you buy. If you buy it from us, you get a physical carbon molecule put back in its place underground. Mm-hmm. That's a different thing than some of the other offsetting solutions. What Rebecca's company does is a very high integrity way of replanting forests. There are other companies for sure that are out there that don't have the same high standards. So this isn't apples to apples, this is apples to oranges. And you know we have to educate people about what is it you're really trying to achieve. If you want physical carbon removal, find the companies and the products that do that and dig into it. And those studies Sabine mentioned, you know, I applaud those, it's, it's, uh, we're, we're on the same page. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. And there's a specific question for you here saying, how big a role can offset markets play in scaling up carbon removal technologies in the next five to 10 years? Are carbon prices not so low and removal technologies so expensive that there is a mismatch? So just to, just to come on that from my perspective, um, as you as you said, Philip, direct air capture is more expensive because you're dealing with CO2 in the air, which is very thinly dispersed. Um, but leading markets already have policies around decarbonizing sectors like transportation that have price points that enable our plants. We're building a plant in in the United States. Uh, We're building it because the policies allow that plant uh, to be built. Um, So again, there's different carbon pricing. There's a perception that there's just one carbon price. We forget that under the California Low Carbon Fuel Standard, for example, carbon prices are about $200 a ton here in British Columbia about three to 400 Canadian dollars per ton for carbon removal for the transportation sector. There are different structures around the world. There is no single carbon price. Thanks, Steve. And I think, as you say, that, yeah, people need to dig in and it's not a simple story that, that, that can be told, unfortunately. Um, Taria, I wanted, there's a question here that says, there was much discussion at COP of the difficulties of spending the huge sums available owing to a lack of appropriate skills at the level of implementation. What are the key skills required in this context, particularly at the local level, and how can we help develop them? Thanks. I mean, that, that's a very broad question because on the one hand, it's across the board, there's 130 trillion and, and the 100 billion per year. But in the context of VCMs, um, you know, there is really a huge need for capacity building at uh, the developing country level to actually be able to navigate across Article 6, um, VCMs, um, how it all plays into NDCs and all of that. And that's why it's really important that, um, you know, there is um, a level of um, funding that's provided for technical assistance and capacity at the country level so that you actually have um, appropriately skilled counterparts across the board. And also, it's very important to have inclusivity in a lot of these organizations that are Um, designing the norms, designing the frameworks for how these markets are going to operate. Uh, 
And um, we sort of deal with that even in our work at the VCMI is managing inclusivity in our organization. And, you know, it's really important to kind of sort of go beyond, um, I would say, sort of the usual suspects <laughs> who, you know, because I think the other thing you find in VCMs is kind of the same group of people. And, you know, you've, we've got to start thinking about actually bringing in folks that might not be the usual suspects, but, you know, really start bringing folks in to sort of be able to share kind of best practices potentially from other sectors or um, be able to really be at the, the, the front lines of how these markets are going to affect them. But I think we're really at, at early days and um, a lot of the developing countries are sort of requesting and asking for support. But I think the challenge right now is there's such a great need for support across the board um, that um, we can't let this drop. And I mean, for us, we're working, the VCMI is actually working with UNDP on the country access strategies and doing sort of country engagement. Um, but I think we're definitely gonna need a lot more sort of capacity and capability thrown at this one. Thanks. Um, Ariel, we've got a question for you here. How do you see the role of speculative investment trading involving as the voluntary market begins to develop more integrity? I mean, I think, I think the reality is that the majority of the investment that we're gonna see in the coming years and probably in the coming decades, you know, is going to be classified as speculative, which is essentially the private sector. Um, the private sector really doesn't need all that much. I mean, they need our certainty on, you know, the risks that they're, that they're um, you know, entering into. They need to have visibility on, you know, what the return profile of a, of a certain project is. Um, and for that, you know, what you need is essentially, you know, legally, um, legally enforceable institutional grade contracts, like what Rebecca is talking about around land rights and 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 um, carbon rights and getting freedom of prior informed consent. Um, you know, on, on things like integrity. I mean, you know, institutions like 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 mine and you know, in in, in places that I've worked, you know, are hugely sensitive um, to making sure that everything we do is you know, it's not just legal and above board, but very high integrity, uh, and is not going to come back. Um, you know, is not going to come back and put ourselves. Um, and our customers at risk, you know, at any point in the future, and there really is no amount of of of, of money um, that that will make us take that that sort of risk. Um, and from my view, you know, every you know, just to echo some of Steve's points, every technology and every intervention has a cost. And I think the market is really already moving towards a place where you know they really are trying to understand what the cost of certain interventions are, um, evaluating removals versus you know, avoidance, you know, the duration um, and the durability of storage. Every one of those types of interventions has a different cost. And I think, you know, let's not call them speculators, but let's just say investors, which is ultimately what they are, um, you know, their job is essentially to deploy capital and have certainty that there's going to be a willing buyer on the other side, whether it's a governmental transaction and it's an ITMO or it's a voluntary transaction without a corresponding adjustment. Um, and if it is a corresponding adjustment, by the way, it's very important that the government understands the price that it is receiving and has a view on how it's going to reinvest that capital. So it doesn't, you know, willingly or unwillingly enter into a transaction um, that puts them in a difficult position because they've sold something too cheap um, below the replacement value. Um, so everything I'm describing is, you know, are the things that, you know, investors are thinking about in these markets. And from my view, um, you know, this market is going to develop like many other markets. Um, and if we're able to, you know, really have higher degree of certainty on the integrity and, you know, really of the risks um, that we're entering into, that's really what's required to unlock, 
um, the scale of capital that's required, um, you know, to really address this issue at large. Thanks, Ariel. We've got three questions, which I'll try and just quickly whisk through in three minutes. Um, so, uh, Rebecca, perhaps, what is the state of play of a global registry to avoid double counting of projects? Yeah, no, this is still complicated and not fully resolved by the, the latest COP negotiations, unfortunately. Um, the way that we try to think about it is sort of like GDP versus a company's accounting, right? They're, uh, they're both technically adding up the same numbers, um, but they are sourced and accounted for differently by governments versus, versus companies. I think double accounting is going to need to be um, further defined, hopefully in future COPs. They are certainly taking their time with this one, I have to say. Um, but it is, it is going to be an and-to-end solution because you are going to need private sector funding um, to make a lot of these projects happen. They are going to need to be able to make claims for that, um, for that investment. Um, and you're also going to need government solutions as well, both on the implementation side, but also on the funding side. Particularly, I think it would be interesting to see how carbon financing can support some broader climate solutions uh, in a more you know, public-private partnership type of orientation. So I think that that is what's hard about Article 6 and the double counting is we're trying to make this very clean and neat. And the reality is, is it's going to require contributions from all different parts of, um, of our economy and our society and making the writing clear rules for that is difficult. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to end the discussion there because we've, we've run out of time and we could keep going for another hour or more, I think. But I think there were three things that, that came out of it for me. I mean, the question was carbon offsetting, should it have a role? Or are we kidding ourselves? And it seems to be it should have a role, but in certain circumstances, we are kidding ourselves. And I think one of the things that came out of this was trust. We need to be able to trust and actually understand what's happening. I think, like Steve said, we need to dig into the details and we can't. It's not a simple black or white answer to, to a lot of these questions. And then I really liked what Taria said, that the markets need to evolve with care. And I think that sort of responded to what you were saying, Ariel, is that basically we can't just go forward with business as usual and things need to change. Um, so I'd like to thank all our panellists. That was a super interesting discussion. And um, I apologise to the, the two questions that we, we didn't get to answer. Thank you, everybody. I think you summed that up magnificently, Philippa. Thank you so much. I was I was thinking actually, and I was listening to you that I know that if we'd had that conversation with some people in the carbon world, we might have been dazzled or perhaps bamboozled by science or by rhetoric. But we knew that we could trust you all to have a, a really thoughtful and, and robust, honest conversation and to learn from you all. So Ariel, Rebecca, Sabina, Steve, Terry, and, and Philippa for guiding them magnificently. Thank you so very much. That's it for now. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at UK underscore Aspen. And to stay up to date with our work and future discussions, check out our website at aspenuk.org. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.